Good morning. I'm Pastor Gary. I serve here as his senior associate pastor. And it's my privilege, I don't often uh, speak on Sunday morning, but it's my privilege today to open the word for us and to help us think together about God's truth. I'd like to welcome those who are here with us. We've got a lot of kids out here today as well. Kids, raise your hand if you're normally in Sunday school, but you're here today. All right. It's good to see you. Yeah. I'd like to welcome also the three to 400 people who tune in online. You may not be aware that we have such a large audience there. And we trust that you'll benefit as well, those of you who are online. My traditions, friends, and then our Bethel Church at Kindred also will be tuning in. Trust you had a meaningful Thanksgiving holiday. It's all about family, family and friends, isn't it? Today we have kind of an urgent prayer request regarding someone who's close to us, a family member. We support and are closely connected to a man named Raj who serves with Amistad Ministries in the country of India. Raj is a a central figure to just uh, thousands and thousands of people being impacted by the ministry there. We got word yesterday that his 14-year-old daughter, Pauline, had been kidnapped. And they haven't been able to locate her yet. They're fearful that it's a trafficking situation. But I thought it'd be appropriate for us to just take a moment and pray, and then I'd encourage you to continue to pray for Pauline is her name. Can't imagine uh, her feelings and the fear she's experiencing right now. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you are an all-seeing and all-knowing God. You know exactly where Pauline is. And we pray that you would comfort her, that she would draw upon the presence of your spirit and lean hard on you, Lord, in this frightful time. We pray that the authorities would be able to locate her and that she would be unharmed. We pray for Raj. Can't imagine a father in this situation. Give him your comfort, strength, peace. We just pray you'll do a miracle and help the authorities to locate her. We commit her to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about what to be, what to be. You've seen the inspirational phrases that are often used to encourage or remind or motivate us, challenge us. My wife likes to write out um, in longhand cursive for those kids, if you're not sure what that is, uh, handwriting. She writes out the beautiful verses and then she pins them on our, tapes them on our uh, bathroom mirror. So it's often there to remind me. We have ushers, I'll take just a moment, we have ushers coming down the aisles. If you'd like a Bible, please raise your hand and I'll see that you get one of those. But we are often motivated by brief phrases. Be strong, be brave, be all you can be, be united, be smart, be nice, be quick. Be memorable, be stylish, be careful, 
We hear that on the news every night, the latest scam. Be careful. Be generous. Be happy. Be true to yourself. Be kind. Be healthy. Be a force. Be cool. Valentine's Day, we say, be mine. Today, as we study another name of God, Jehovah Kadesh, we discover that God's plan for us is summed up in two words. Be holy. Leviticus, where we're going to read, is in the third book in the Old Testament, in the Bible that you just received. The first section of the Bible, listen or read along as I share this verse with us. Leviticus 20, 7 to 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Hear my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Jehovah Kadesh, that's our name for today. God who is holy says, be holy. Be like him. Really, he's saying, be mine. Be my people. Wow, is that even possible? What did that look like to the Israelites who first heard it? And what does it look like for us today? Well, today, we're going to review the context of this command to be holy. We're going to explore what the holiness of God is. We're going to examine the unholiness or sinfulness of man. And we're going to discover how we can personally experience the fulfillment of this command to be holy. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the focus today will be on the message and not the messenger. Send your word forth with truth and power and impact our hearts and lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like first to give you an overview and some context for the verses that we find in Leviticus 27 and 8. In the historical timeline of Israel's journey, the book of Leviticus is given through Moses to his people a short time after they had been delivered from Egypt. You'll remember the book of beginnings. Kids, what do we call that book? The first book of the Bible. Genesis, yeah. Genesis. God promised Abraham to raise up a great nation, a blessed, chosen people from his family. At the end of Genesis, God sustains his people by providing a home in Egypt through Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. 400 years later, as they're settled there but struggling as slaves in a foreign country, Jehovah God calls Moses to dramatically lead his people out of Pharaoh's grip, performing miracle after miracle. Now freed from Egypt, Israel begins the journey toward their promised land of Canaan. As they're in the desert, Jehovah, God, begins to reveal himself to his people by providing a covenant of law, which the people readily accepted. 
Detailed plans for instituting and constructing the tabernacle follow. And then in the book of Leviticus, Jehovah reveals his holiness and the requirements for fellowship with him. Due to the sinfulness of man, a substitutionary sacrificial system was required. Looking ahead to that day when the Son of God would one day give his life as a perfect and final sacrifice for all sin. So it's in this context that God declared himself to be Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord who is holy. Let's look more carefully at this attribute of God. To try to understand God's holiness, we look at the root word that's expressed here. In the Hebrew, the word Kadesh is translated into our English language in several forms. It has the core meaning of being set apart. In the Old Testament, it's used over 400 times. 50 times it refers to that special relationship that God had with the Israelites as a nation. It's used to describe people, places, and things. In the New Testament, it's used 22 times, most often in, when referring to those that God has called to be his followers. And he calls them saints. Holy is the most common translation. And then another word, sanctify, refers to the act of being set apart, of being made holy. All those words, holy, sanctify, saints, all come from the same root. In the reference in Leviticus 20, God says, be holy because I am holy. That's the motivation behind the command. God desired that Israel be like him and not like the evil nations that, was, that were around them. In Ephesians 1.4, we have that same aspiration repeated. God says, as believers, we who trust in Christ need to be distinct. We need to be set apart, to be different, to be holy. What is the attribute of holiness? A.W. Tozer, the author of this classic little book that I have another copy at home, it's pretty well worn and, and forgot it this morning, and I found this one on my shelf. In the, ninth, in the uh, past 20th century, A.W. Tozer was, wrote a number of, of thoughtful and reflective uh, devotionals and books about worshiping God. And I can't really say it much better than him, so I'm going to quote him a couple times here. He says that a divine attribute is not a part of God. It is how God is. The attributes of God are what we know to be true of God. He does not possess them as qualities. They are how God is as he reveals himself to his creatures. God is not just a higher power, a mysterious force, or is often referenced the man upstairs, he is, however, a personal, spiritual, moral being who has disclosed himself and his relation with mankind through the inspired scriptures. It's hard for us to appreciate the holiness of God. Again, Tozer words it well. 
He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, it's unique, it's unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Seems like I've heard a song to that effect. I can only imagine what, how I might respond when I'm in his presence. Tozer goes on, he says, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God is holy and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. The formation of the language itself suggests this. The English word holy derives from the Anglo-Saxon halig or hal, meaning well or whole. When I catch a glimpse of God's holiness, I quickly realize that I have a problem. He is holy and I am not. When men in the Bible were confronted with God's holiness, here's how they responded. Isaiah said, woe, I am ruined. Job lamented, I am speechless and repent in dust and ashes. When Peter realized that Jesus was God's son, he said, he cried, depart from me. I am a sinful man. You know, the Bible uses many different words to illustrate sin. Romans 3, 10 and 11 declares that no one is innocent of transgressing or violating God's laws. It talks about stepping over the line. Romans 3:23 says we all fall short of God's glory. Sin is referred to sometimes as missing the mark being bad, evil, broken. We'd regularly displease God in our unbelief, our thoughts, our words, our actions. He says we are often unjust, unrighteous, unclean, prideful, rebellious, corrupt. We fail to meet God's standard of holiness. We are guilty of sins of commission by doing wrong, giving offense, and making immoral choices and sins of omission by not doing what God says is good. You know, the Bible doesn't spare any details when it records the stories of Jehovah's interaction with real people like you and I. 
over and over again when the biblical heroes are laid bare, contrasting them with the perfect holiness of Jehovah Kadesh and showing the terrible consequences of sin oftentimes. Bible characters that you and I know really well, you've heard stories about them, committed the sins of disobedience, pride, murder, lying, immorality, adultery, among others. And Romans 6.23 says the wages or what we earned for that sin is death. The result of sin for all is physical and then sadly, spiritual death. Well, you say, Pastor Gary, what's, give me some good news here. This sounds pretty discouraging. What can we do? Here's how different people, groups of people react to knowing or hearing about the fact that they're sinful. Many just deny it. They say that there is no God, no eternal God. There's no absolute truth, no responsibility on my part to a creator God. I wasn't created, I evolved. So why not just eat, drink, and be merry? This life is all there is. I hope you're not in that category. Others admit they sin, but compare themselves with everyone else and say, I'm not so bad. Reflect with me on this calculation. And kids, I know when I do the ask me anythings in Awana and Sunday mornings, you're, they always want to know how old I am. Well, if you could do math, I'll give you a clue here, all right? If I committed only one sin per day, I would currently have over 25,763 sins on my log sheet. Not a small number. And I'm sure the actual number is much, much higher. You can do the math for yourself. It's a matter of perspective. I'm privileged in our home to kind of have my bathroom. Well, my bathroom is frequented usually just by me. And I have a little nightlight in there. I don't like bright lights in the morning. So the nightlight suffices. Usually mornings, afternoons, evenings, it's good. I don't always have my glasses on. But you know, my bathroom's clean. But then my wife, every now and then, turns the light on. And I hear, Gary Seifers. <laughs> this is terrible. Dim light, no glasses, it looked okay to me. <laughs> yeah. We compare ourselves, so it's a matter of perspective. We think, I'm not so bad. Probably the majority of folks, though, admit that they do sin, but they think the solution is to do good works, earning favor or forgiveness with their God. 
We were privileged to live in the country of Portugal and minister to international families as a Christian school director there for nine years. And there was a, a nearby shrine that we occasionally would go basically as tourists. It was a shrine of Fatima. And once a year, they'd have special meetings there commemorating the time when supposedly some young people saw a vision of Mary. And a shrine is built up, and folks come, oftentimes doing penance. When you drive in the area on a certain weekend in May, you can see folks crawling on their knees to get to the shrine to ask Mary to help them or to help their loved one to get out of purgatory and into heaven doing penance, trying to earn favor with God. In my travels to the country of India, it was very common for Indian families to have an idol or a shrine right in their home. The Hindu gods are in the millions, and they live in fear that they might offend one of them. Islamic fasting and prayers their do devotion is commendable. Buddhist prayer wheels blowing in the wind, sending millions of prayers to God, hoping that in the next life they'll be more holy. Here in America, we worship often the creation rather than the creator. We as people are the focus of all our energy and investment. You know, all these solutions are based on a wrong view of Jehovah Kadesh, our holy God. They're a hopeless exercise. He's not a benevolent grandfather who will overlook our wrongs if we try hard enough or, and, or try to twist his arm to give us something we don't deserve. Stop with the foolishness. The eternal God says he is holy and for us to have a relationship with him, we must be holy. What will we do? Praise God that he who exposes our sinfulness in contrast with his holiness has provided a solution to our dilemma. But it's not by good works or following a system of religion. It's by grace, unmerited favor that he grants us. A truly Christian worldview acknowledges a unique, personal, eternal God who is described in the word of truth, this Bible, and it tells us who he is, who we are, and gives us the story of redemption, how we can, by faith, be saved from our sin and live in fellowship with our Creator, both now and into eternity. You say, help me understand, Pastor Gary. It sounds pretty complicated. The Bible uses the word sanctification to talk about the process of being made holy or being set apart. 
It describes how our relationship with God begins, how that relationship determines or transforms our daily lives, and then how that relationship determines our continued existence after our physical death. So we're looking at three tenses here, past, present, and future. Today we're gonna focus in on how Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, a great gulf separates us from our God. Our loving and gracious Jehovah Kadesh planned from eternity past to atone or pay the penalty for our sins through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 is a verse that probably a lot of you kids could, could quote for me. It says, if we believe that Jesus died for us, then God will grant us eternal life. We'll be born from anew, born from above, born again. Romans 5.19 says that Jesus fulfilled the law and was the final perfect sacrifice once and for all, for all sins. We can read that if you'd like to turn. Hebrews 10 tells that story, verses 10 to 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is no other way to have a personal relationship with God. We cannot earn our way to heaven by our works. It was a work that only the perfect Son of God could do on our behalf. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Acts 4.12 says there's no other name under heaven that we need to, to trust in. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there's no re other religious leader that can be a mediator between God and man, save Jesus Christ, his son. John 14.6 says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of the ways, but that way. No one comes to the Father, he says, but through me. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Listen carefully. 
Salvation is not by works. It's not through another name. It's not by another religious leader. It's not through another religious system. It's not, there's not another path or person that can provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. What or who are you trusting in today? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Have you had your sins forgiven once and for all because you believe Christ died for you, for me? That's the question of the day. Holiness only comes through the person of Christ. You know, once we put our trust in Christ, a number of things happen in the spiritual realm. Our holy God sees us positionally as in Christ. We are counted as already being holy or sanctified. The penalty for our sins has been paid and we are totally forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. I want to sing, oh happy day, oh happy day, when my sins were washed away. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Wow. Once that transaction takes place, we put our trust in him, he saves us, cleansing us from all sin, and makes us his children set apart to do his work. You know, then God calls us, here's that word again, saints. You know, being a saint is not an aspiration or a title or an honor to be earned or awarded after we die. It's what God calls anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. He said, the Bible says that he called, calls us saints. At the moment anyone acknowledges their sinfulness and puts their faith in Christ, the blessed Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence in their life. We read that in John 14, seven. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is a blessing or privilege that Old Testament believers did not enjoy or experience. Just think, the Holy Spirit, God himself, with you every moment of every day. The scriptures also say in Ephesians 4.30 that the Holy Spirit seals the believer until the day of redemption when we actually are in the presence of Jehovah Kadesh. According to 1 Corinthians 12.13, the Holy Spirit baptizes, or the word means he puts us into, introduces us into the body of Christ, the church universal, 
which is made up of not a local church, but all those rather who have put their trust in Christ. They are part of the process. These are spiritual actions that are not requested or earned by a believer. They're part of the process whereby God sanctifies us, making us holy at the moment of salvation. What wonderful promises. God in his love and grace accomplishing for us what we could never accomplish on our own. There should be no anxiety on the part of believers. Perhaps you've worried at times that your salvation might be taken away or you might lose it. Undoing what God has sovereignly done. No. He promises his spirit will be with us until that moment when we see him face to face. On January 1st, in five weeks, I'm going to continue this conversation about sanctification. So put that on your calendars. Don't party too much that night before. We'll need you here Sunday morning, January 1st. We're going to talk then about how sanctification or being made holy impacts our daily experience and what that looks like. And then look ahead to the time when we'll be completely free from the presence of sin in heaven. We'll dig deeper into that and understand better how we can please God each day of the coming year. As you enjoy the holidays of Christmas and New Year's and the weeks until then, let me challenge you with our one thing for today. I'd like you to reflect as I will be doing on what it means when the Bible says believers are in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. He died, but it's like I died with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ through the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My prayer is that would be your daily experience. And we'll talk more, as I said, on January 1st and continue this discussion. But it all starts with a decision to trust Christ. Not to trust your works, not to trust some religious system, but to trust the living Son of God, that he is who he says he is, and that he died for you and for me, paying the penalty for our sins for all eternity. If you'd like to learn more about that, about that commitment, I'll be down in the front afterwards. Be a wonderful way to start out the new year having experienced God's grace and the eternal life that only he can give. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Once again, I pray the message of truth will ring clear in our hearts and minds. I know, Father, there are folks sitting here listening to my voice today who have chosen to try to earn their way to you or aren't sure that they believe everything that I've said. I pray by your spirit you would cause your word 
to take root in their minds and hearts and that they would respond to you as the true and only God, Jehovah Kadesh, the one who's holy. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.